Good morning, everybody. Uh, it's actually so good to be here. Uh, I was talking to Neil and Jack before and just realized it was like three years ago I was here. Um, so that's kind of amazing, but it's great to see your faces. Um, and so, so thankful I'm here. Can I just pray before we get stuck in? Father, we thank you so much um, that we can come into this building and come into your presence. And Lord, in this time, may we know more of you, know more of your love. And through your Holy Spirit, may it just shape us into the likeness of your Son. Lord, may we find so much joy in this time, so much hope in this time. And so, Holy Spirit, be with us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, So your theme you've been uh, going through is character under construction. Um, whenever I got that text through, I was like, actually, that's a really cool theme, and I really want to be a part of that, so thank you, Neil. Um, and I, I've went with compassionate living. That's what we're looking at this morning, um, the idea of this character that we can have as believers and followers in Christ of compassionate living, that we are compassionate people. Um, and so compassion, if you were to, um, I'll always forget to click this, so if I do, just Andy Gordon, please just click, okay? Click. Compassion. What is compassion? Um, In the simplest kind of term, compassion is um, sympathy that you feel towards others who are suffering. Sympathy you feel towards the suffering of others. And a better way, I guess, there's a guy called Thomas E. Reynolds. He's a theology professor in Toronto, very far away. Um, But he puts it like this here. It does not hide or flee suffering, but shares it. This is compassion. Respecting and affirming the vulnerable presence of another enough to abide with them faithfully so that they are not alone. As it also desires another's well-being and works to alleviate suffering and expand joy. That's better than Google, isn't it? That definition of compassion is far better than anything that we can kind of comprehend. And the amazing thing is that God says he is compassionate. He is compassionate. And whenever God describes himself, whenever in the Bible you open up and you see actually a time whenever God says, I am this, we need to listen. It's not like whenever... um, have you ever found yourself at like a party or a gathering and you're talking away to people and you say things like, oh yeah, yeah, I'm a bit of a morning person. And then your wife beside you goes, no, you're not. Snooze the alarm six times this morning, you are not a morning person. And you're kind of like, oh yeah, yeah, I'm kind of not. We can't always trust how we choose to define ourselves or how we choose to describe ourselves because we always try to want to describe ourselves in the way that we want to be. That's not how God works. He knows himself. 
inside out. And so whenever he defines himself, whenever he reveals himself to us, we need to listen. We need to listen. He doesn't have a wife beside him to go, hmm, no. Whenever he defines himself, we need to listen. You might remember a time in Exodus whenever Moses said, God, I want to see you. Let me see you. Let me know you. Let me see your full self. And God says, I can't do that. If you see me, you will die. But what God does do is, it's really weird, he finds a rock, puts Moses inside it, and then he walks past Moses, puts his hand in front of his face as he walks past, and God says this. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate. This is God speaking. The Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. And so God describes himself, defines himself, I am compassionate. I am compassionate. It's the first word he chooses to use to describe himself, compassionate. This word um, that he uses, compassionate, um, in, the, in the Hebrew, now the Northern Irish accent will always never do justice to the Hebrew. It's like, rakim, not rakim keeps coming out that way. Rakim. And it's this idea of compassion, but it's also so closely linked to this other word in Hebrew for womb. And so you get this incredible picture, this incredible idea that this kind of compassion is right at the center of God, right at his core. And it makes you want to think of a mother and their womb, and depending on what's going on inside their womb, can, Takara, I've just noticed you. How are you? You all right? Um, depending on what's going on inside that person's womb, that mother's womb, can make all their stuff start to happen. It can mean that in the middle of worship, you have to run out there and be sick. My wife's pregnant, by the way. Um, and it can change everything about your body because the womb. It also creates this idea, this kind of compassion is like the compassion a mother has for their child. It's this level of compassion. It goes also, you get to start to get into this really kind of metaphorical language of it's about a parent and their son, a parent and their daughter, a parent and child. Because it's also about a father. God is compassionate like a father. As a father has compassion on his children, so is the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. And you know, when you think about a mother and that kind of love that they have for their child, their baby, um, you begin to get a little glimpse of the compassion of God. But God himself knows that we are human, that we don't always, we're not always the best father, we're not always the best mother. Um, And he reminds us, can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? It's a rhetorical question. Of course not. But though she may forget, I will not forget you. I know it's so important um, to remember of how much more compassionate the Lord is. And our metaphors of father and mother, they They often fall short, but he does not fall short. His compassion does not fall short. 
C.S. Lewis reminds us in um, his book, Four Loves, he says this, man approaches God most nearly when he is in one sense least like God. Man approaches God most nearly when he is in one sense least like God. And so, uh, it's act- you know, we, we pray and we really strive because we want to be most like Jesus, but we also need to recognize how unlike him we are that actually sometimes our compassion falls short of his. The mother will try and do the best job in the world, but it falls short of the compassion that actually God has. And so question, how does his compassion make you feel? Because God is compassionate. How does his compassion make you feel? Think about it. We've just taken communion We've just remembered what he has done for us. How does it make you feel? Grateful? Thankful? Humbled? I bet no one here feels angry about the compassion of God. Right now you probably never say, I feel angry, but he's so compassionate. Oh, he's so compassionate. I'm so angry about it. That nobody is feeling that right now. But there was one guy in the Bible, Jonah, who felt so angry about the compassion of God. And so you know the story of Jonah. You know it. God comes to Jonah. He says, Jonah, you need to go to Nineveh. Nineveh is a city full of Assyrian people, Assyrian people who hate the Israelites, who have destroyed them, and who were known for how brutally they destroyed them. Um, they chose horrendous ways to kill those people. And so Jonah rightfully does not like the people in Nineveh. God says, you need to go to Nineveh because you need to tell them that if they don't stop their brutal ways, I'm going to destroy them. Jonah's like, why on earth would I want to do that? And so he doesn't want to do it. He flees away to go to Tarshish. He's like, I'm not doing that. Um, While he's on the boat, God sends a huge storm. The only way to stop the storm, the guys throw him overboard. God sends a great fish, swallows up Jonah, gets him to Nineveh, and spits him out on the beaches right outside Nineveh. While he was in that fish, he repented of his attitude, um, and he realized, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to go preach this message in Nineveh. And so he does. We all know what happens. The people of Nineveh repent and say, okay, we're going to repent from our brutal ways. And God says, I won't destroy you. And that's where we pick up the story. And I want to walk through chapter four because chapter four is this incredible picture of the compassion of God. So if you have your Bible, you can open up to Jonah four. As we kind of walk through this um, rather strange story. In chapter 4. And here we have the man who is actually angry with God because he is compassionate. And so God said, I'm not destroying people of Nineveh. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong. And he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was at home? This is what I tried to 
stop by fleeing to Tarshish, I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry? And so do you hear what Jonah is saying? It sounds almost ridiculous, but he's pointing at God, so I knew you would do this. I knew you're gracious and compassionate. He knew Exodus. He knew how God describes himself. I knew you would do this. And he's angry with God because of his compassion. And you know, different people view uh, God's compassion differently. I don't know if you've ever met somebody um, who's maybe said to you, do you know your God? He's not compassionate enough. I look around this world, I see famine, I see kids who are dying, I see awful stuff happening all across the world. Your God, if he's real, he's not compassionate enough. And then sometimes actually you'll find that the same person will argue that our God is too compassionate. Your God's too compassionate. That guy who's done this, 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 he was in jail for this, this, and this, and now he's walking the streets and he's part of that church? No. Where's the justice in that? Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever been angry about God's compassion? Have you ever felt something or said to yourself, oh, it's a bit early for him to be back on stage? It's a bit early for him to be leading worship again. You know, sometimes we can, in subtler ways, be angry or uncomfortable with the compassion of God. Where we do look out into this world and we kind of see it just doesn't quite make sense. But we have to remember this truth. And it's the truth of God always chooses. It's his choice who he has compassion on. It's not ours, it's his. Exodus 33, verse 19, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. It's his choice. It's not us for, up to us to decide. It's not our right to decide. It's his right. He's God. If we believe he is who he says he is, he's the creator of this earth, it's his choice who he has compassion on. It's not ours. It's his choice. And so the next question as humans, well, what's the criteria? What criteria do I need to meet to make sure I'm under the compassion of God? What's the... How do you know that you are going to be under the compassion of God? And that's where we need to balance this verse with Psalm 145, verse 9. Here's the criteria. Here's the criteria the Lord uses. The Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all that he has made. Have you been made by God? Have you been made by God? Are you one of his creation? Yep. That's the criteria. That's the criteria. That doesn't mean just you, but that means every single 
created being on this planet is under the compassion of God. That's his criteria. And so then how do we then balance this up whenever, if this is fact, if this is really who he is, how do we make sense of everything else going on in this world? And for that, let's go back to Jonah, um, verses 5 to 9. Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade and waited to see what would happen to the city, still hoping God might destroy it. Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it to grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head, to ease his discomfort, and Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said, and I'm so angry and I wish I were dead. And so this next interaction with Jonah and God, um, you know, you could read it and go, oh God, that was a bit, that was a bit, you give him this plant and then you just take it away and the next day, like, oh, it's a bit harsh. You could read it like that. Um, but keep in mind what sort of compassion the Lord has. He compares it to a father and a mother and their son or their daughter. Um, Christy and I at the minute are watching a TV show. Uh, it's an older one, Eight Simple Rules. Anybody remember it? Yeah? Funny. Basically, such a simple premise is about a dad called Paul who's trying to be a father to his two teenage daughters and his teenage son. It's called Eight Simple Rules for Dating My Teenage Daughter. Really funny. Pretty simple. But the, basically, the premise of the show is always the same. The two teenage uh, daughters, uh, Bridget and Carrie, they are always so glad of the perks that their dad gives them. Money for going shopping, uh, able to drive the car and take it out until they do something they shouldn't have done and then their dad takes away the perks and grounds them. And always, pretty much in every episode, you'll hear the line, oh, you're the worst, I hate you. Oh, my life is over. And the drama of the two teenage girls, it's funny. Um, And then you'll always get the conversation with Paul, the dad, and the mother, Kate. And Paul's always like, oh, what did I do wrong? Should I have done that? And Kate's like, you did the right thing. You're their dad. And so when you think of that father and daughter, father-son relationship, the compassion doesn't stop. The compassion doesn't cease. It just looks different. And for God, he has compassion on Jonah, almost to the point where he wasn't allowing Jonah to continue this train of thought, continue this horrible attitude. And so he needs to teach him something. He needs to give him something, and he might need to take it away. And so the more we get this idea of, it's like this parental relationship, the compassion of God starts to make a little bit more sense. And so God's compassion may look like hard lessons. 
it may look like tough lessons. So it's so important for us not to judge his compassion based on what we have or we don't have. And so Jonah needed to learn that lesson. But then God wants to teach him something else about this plant. Um, And so we go on to the last two verses in this chapter. But the Lord said, you have been concerned. This word concerned can mean pity. It can mean compassion. You've had compassion about this plant. Though you did not tend to it or make it grow, it sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left and also many animals? You've had compassion for this plant. Should I not have compassion over the great city of Nineveh. This word for compassion, you see it's been translated in this concern. It might be pity in your Bible, um, but it's compassion. It's another Hebrew word for compassion. It's kus, again. No Irish accent might not be doing that justice, but kus. And this sort of compassion, it's a deeper sort of compassion that's linked to pity or more sorrow, closely linked to just weeping and crying. That kind of compassion. And that's the sort of compassion that's been chosen just here to describe how Jonah thinks about this plant that he had nothing to do with. He didn't tend to it, make it grow, and it died. And he feels this crucial compassion, this sorrowful compassion. And God says, there's a city of 120,000 people that I made. That's how I look at them. Um, Tim Keller uh, rightfully expresses in his book, Prodigal Prophet, how crazy this is, how absolutely nuts this is, that our God chooses to feel this way about people. Keep in mind, God does not need us. It's good to be reminded that he does not need you. He chooses you. He chooses to have this relationship, this attachment relationship with us that just doesn't make sense. Because if he is saying he is compassionate, and we go back to the definition that um, Thomas E. Reynolds has, we can rephrase it slightly like this. This is what God is saying. God does not hide or flee suffering, but shares it. Respecting and affirming our vulnerable presence. Abiding with us faithfully so that we are not alone. He also desires our well-being and works to alleviate our suffering and expand our joy. And this is his choice. Whenever he sees his creation in pain and in suffering, he feels it. Whenever they are joyful and praising, he feels it. He has chosen to have this attachment relationship with us. And so whenever he says he is compassionate, this is what he is saying to us. This is what he is saying to Nineveh. Um, Kus, this this Hebrew word for uh, compassion, um, I was looking up, and the only other kind of meaning it can have, kus, is black or darkened or kind of like a blacky brown. Really random. 
It was one of those times where you were looking at it and going, this must mean something. It must mean something. Why on earth would they choose to use this word that can also mean black or darkened? I don't think it does. But I went searching for it anyway, and the only other time this word kus in the form of black or darkened is used in the Bible is in Genesis 30, whenever Jacob um, is having this kind of debate, kind of negotiation with Laban about uh, the sheep. And Jacob says, do you know what? My payment can be all the black or kus sheep. The black sheep, the spotted sheep, the striped sheep, all the sheep that usually shepherds don't really want because of their lack in value. They're just not as great as the other sheep. The black sheep. And it made me start thinking about people. Some people suggest this is where the phrase black sheep of the family, have you heard that? Comes from. It's a bit loose, I don't know. Um, black sheep of the family. Who's the black sheep of the family, of your family? Who is it? Could be you. Um, who is that person in your family um, that uh, if someone was to talk to them, they wouldn't automatically go, oh, you must be so-and-so's son, or you must be so-and-so's daughter. Um, they're, a wee, they're, they're removed from the family, family values. They don't really adhere to the culture of the family. They've removed themselves from it. They're the black sheep. You wouldn't actually know they're part of that family. And whenever I started thinking about black sheep, and whenever you think of black sheep in either movies or TV shows, we often really enjoy that character. We often grow to love that character. And that's how God looks at black sheep. He looked at Nineveh and said, they're the black sheep of the family. Okay, they're not of the nation of Israel. They're not part of our family. But I created every single one of them. And they're black sheep. And whenever you think about how God treats black sheep, you look at Jacob who decided, I want all the black sheep. Whenever you think of how God deals with black sheep, he leaves the 99 beautiful, pure, white sheep and runs after to try and find the one lost black sheep. Whenever you think of the black sheep's son who has ran away from his family, who said, I don't want to be a part of this family anymore, he's met with the father who, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. That's how God deals with black sheep. And sometimes we just need to be reminded of how much compassion our God has that makes no sense to this world and can sometimes make no sense to us. And so what do we do then if we find ourselves a wee bit like Jonah, who walked out of the city, was looking and waiting for its destruction, and just started weeping? What do we do with that? In every sense, Jesus helps, doesn't he? Jesus helps us here. Um, it's Jesus who we look to whenever we're trying to think, what, what should my character look like? Um, because Jesus, in many senses, did the same thing Jonah did. 
He walked out of a city. He looked back on that city, Jerusalem, and he just started to weep. Weep with compassion for a city. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who sent you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you are not willing. See that mother-child compassion that Jesus just longed to have with Jerusalem, his people, and they weren't willing. He was rejected. And so you have Jesus outside the city looking at Jerusalem, and he says exactly the same thing Jonah said. It's better I die. But his reason was so different to Jonah. Jonah says, if I don't see the destruction of that city, it's better I die. Jesus wept because he didn't want to see their destruction. He said, I want to see them live so better I die. The only way they will be saved is if I die. And you look at Jesus, how he, his compassion is just poured out on his children that he longs to just gather them in. God reminded Jonah that these people in Nineveh don't know their right from their left. God looked at the people in Jerusalem and said, they are sheep without a shepherd. They're black sheep, and they don't have a shepherd. While he was on that cross, he cried out, forgive them, Father, because they don't know what they're doing. The level of compassion of our God, of our Jesus, is so beyond anything that we could actually comprehend. Tim Keller, again, in his book, says, Jesus was the perfect prophet that Jonah was not. Jonah missed it. He missed it completely. Um, And so we look at our Jesus. We look at him and we say, you are compassionate. You are. You're compassionate. And then the challenge comes. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion. Kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Compassion. He says, I am compassionate. Clothe yourselves in it. Be compassionate. Let this be part of the character that you are constructing, you are building. Be compassionate. And so how how do you do that? I have three things I want to share with you and then I'm done. Um, How do you become this compassionate person that in any way gets close to the compassion of our Jesus. The first thing is, and we've already done it, um, is remember. Uh, We've spent some time remembering uh, the compassion of our Lord Jesus. Uh, And we need to, it was really, actually really interesting sitting in this seat because then you get to hold the, I don't know, what would you call, what do you call that? The tra- tray. Thank you. You hold the tray, and in that tray, there's still cups of wine, cups of juice. It's still there. And we need to be reminded that Jesus didn't just die for me, Zach, 
didn't just die for Bethany Church, but he, for the whole of Belfast, that blood was spilt. He has died for all people of all races, of all nations. I think one of the, my, my wife always reminds me that God is not white. He's not a white man. He's not a Western man. God is the God of all nations and all races, and we need to remember he has died for every single one. If we are in any doubt of how God feels about the guy who lives down the street, the man who lives in a different country, we need to look to Jesus and remember all that he has done for us and for them. Remember. How do we remember? Do not neglect to take communion. Take it daily to remember what he has done. It was such a blessing actually to be a part of that this morning. Um, do not neglect to read this book that just shouts about the compassion of our Lord Jesus Christ. That shouts about how compassionate and loving he is. Um, and so do you need reminded? Um, who, who in your life, in, in, on your, who lives on your street, works at your work, who do you need to remind that actually they are an image bearer of God, that actually they've been created by him, and he, even though they have not yet chosen him, he still has a deep compassion on that person. Admittedly, I often forget. I forget. And so sometimes I just could not be bothered talking to that guy at work. I couldn't be bothered talking to that neighbor <laughs> we live in like an apartment and there's sometimes you go to open the door to go outside and then you hear another apartment open and you kind of wait like this because you're like I don't want to be stuck in the corridor with those guys or you hear yourself whenever I, I'm from on along you thank you it's very different to Belfast and oftentimes when we're thinking do we go into town do we not go into town my mind goes oh I don't want to go into town there's too many people in town there's too many people there. And you're like, you need to be reminded that everyone is an image bearer of God. They're just the black sheep of the family. And so remember how God treats the black sheep. Remember how he looks upon them with a deep, deep compassion. Next thing is share. Clicker. Share. Share in what? Share in Jesus' suffering. Share in the suffering of Jesus. Jesus realized whenever he was outside of Jerusalem, weeping over them, saying, I just, want to, I just want to be with you. He realized the only way that they will be with him is if he dies. If he completely empties himself, literally. He knew the cost. He counted the cost. And he said, I want to do this. I'm choosing to do this for you. And so we're called to share in the sufferings of Christ. Because whenever we take on this character of compassion, and we're actually going to enter those spaces where we need to show compassion to other people, it's going to cost you something. It's going to cost you something. It's going to probably be a painful process. You're probably going to, whenever you share in somebody's suffering, it means share in their sufferings. You're going to feel it yourself. Whenever we're called to bear one another's burdens within church, that means you're going to feel the weight of it. It's not going to be comfortable. It's going to be tough. It's going to be hard. 
And Jesus says, share in this. And if you need any motivation, remember what he has done. If you need the motivation to do this, when you feel within your spirit of go and talk to that person, share in their suffering, be reminded of everything that Jesus poured out for you. And so be something, someone who is ready to empty themselves, to die to themselves, to realize it is going to cost us something, but we're going to do it. We're going to do it. And then lastly, I want to share with you this idea of find your Jerusalem. And whenever Jesus looked back in Jerusalem, he wept for them. His heart broke for them. When's the last time your heart broke for a group of people? When's the last time you felt that kus, that rakim, that compassion, where you feel pity and sympathy, where you feel sorrow, where your heart is actually breaking for a group of people? And so I want you to think about as an individual first, where is your Jerusalem? And remember what I said, you know, we all want to be like Jesus. That's, we want to be shaped and molded. That's what character under construction is all about, becoming more like Jesus. But at the same time, we need to remember C.S. Lewis, who says, actually, we also need to remember how unlike Jesus we are. He's so much more patient, so much more compassionate, so much more loving, so much more self-controlled, so much more disciplined. We need to also remember that. And so can I encourage you? You do not need to show compassion to the whole world. You can't. Only he can. And so what do we do? How do we make that work? There's a reason God created church. There's a deep reason why he created this thing that we're doing this morning called church. Because I, do you know people who, there's people who just love recycling. They just love it. They're eco-warriors. That person, whenever everybody's leaving the building, they're turning off all the lights Recycling, I just love it. And for good reason, good and right reason, all of us as believers should have an attitude of taking care of this earth. If there's anybody on this planet that should have the biggest kind of eco-warrior spirit, it should be believers, it should be Christians, because this earth belongs to God. So it's right. For whatever reason, I don't care about recycling. I just really struggle to get on board with it. I, really st- I just don't have a heart for it. It's just me being honest. It doesn't make me cry. It doesn't make me feel anything. It just doesn't do it for me. But I know there are people who do. And we need those people. But if you were to ask me about um, special education, disability kids, adults with intellectual disability, for whatever reason, and I did not choose this, my heart just breaks for those people. When they suffer, I feel like I suffer. And I just want to work with those people. I want to see those people in church. I want to see those people fall in love with Jesus. That's where my heart goes. Does everybody care about special educational needs? No. They don't. 
That's not where their heart goes. I have friends who um, uh, work for Made for More, an amazing ministry, an incredible ministry that does so much good for people and young people who are struggling with their mental health. It's amazing, and they're so passionate about it. For whatever reason, I'm not passionate about it. I believe in it, it is right, and I will support it in any way I can. But it's not what makes me really break. And so, we need church. If we really want to make an impact on this earth for the kingdom of God, I need the guys that love recycling, the love to take care of this planet, the love sustainability. I need those who have a passion and care for people who are struggling with their mental health. We need them. And I need to say, yes, and you need me. Someone who loves special education and those with disabilities, we need that person. And so my challenge is to you, find your Jerusalem. What actually is it? What community group, what part of our Belfast do you breaks your heart? Sometimes we can we leave it to a bunch of people to try and cover all the bases. We need to get we need to have a homeless ministry, we need to do open a food bank, we need to I think no one person can do it all because it's not their Jerusalem. But it's somebody's in church. Somebody in church really their heart breaks for the homeless. We need to get behind that person and let them lead us in that. And so, uh, Jean Vanier, Vanier um, who set up Larch, you might know Larch, um, he said, the minute that we start to open up our hearts to be compassionate is whenever fundamental unity starts to happen. And so if you're striving to be unified as a church, you need to recognize and value how individual we are. Because when we recognize that actually we all have a Jerusalem and we strive after that, we as a church can really impact Belfast. Where those who are on the outside can look in and say they love each other and they love this city. And so find your Jerusalem. If you're like, um, if you're saying to yourself, ah, I have no idea what that is. I, I, what on earth is I don't. It's not homeless. I, I don't see myself doing that. I don't see myself doing this. Odds are, it's probably your wife or husband, your kids, your friends, this church. That's your Jerusalem. Strive after loving them and show compassion on them as much as you can. Find your Jerusalem. Jesus is with you in this. He's filled you with the Holy Spirit so that you can do this. We'll always fall short of his compassion. And so if you're sitting there going, I, I don't think I'm actually ready to jump into showing compassion to this city. Maybe you just need a reminded of how much compassion he has for you. And so I want to um, leave you with this. A reminder of just how much, firstly, he loves you and the compassion he has for you and Bethany Church. 
I want you to really think about this and just, there's a reason I spent so long on God's compassion in a very short time on three practical things because you really just need to reflect on this, that God does not hide or flee suffering, but shares it. He shares, right now, he shares in what you're going through. He respects and affirms our vulnerable presence. In the car on the way here, I was thinking about, you know, as you come to church, you're excited about coming into the presence of God. But actually, if we learn from Jesus, he came into our presence. Which is crazy to think about. That he came into your presence. And sometimes that makes you want to do this. But he is open, he is respecting and affirming your vulnerable presence. He abides with you faithfully. He's not just with you for a very short time. He's with you faithfully so that you are never alone. What's his desire? His desire is for your well-being. And he works day and night. Every minute of every day, he works to alleviate your suffering and to expand your joy. He does all of that for you. And now let the Spirit stir within you to go out into this world and do the same. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much. We thank you so, so much. We praise you that not only are we allowed to come into your presence, but for some reason, you chose to come into ours. You chose to come down onto this earth to show us how compassionate you are. You sat outside the city and you looked back and you wept and said, better I die. And so Lord, we thank you for all that you've done on that cross. We thank you for the compassion that you have poured out, not only onto us who believe, but also onto this whole earth, that all carry your image. And so, Father, I pray that you be with us. May your Holy Spirit change us and mold us, construct our character to be people of compassion. And Lord, sometimes it's so hard to know what to do. But Lord, may we never stop remembering what you've done, reflecting on your compassion. And Lord, may we be brave enough to share in your suffering. We thank you for Helen Rosevear who reminded us it is a privilege to share in the suffering of Jesus Christ. And Lord, point us to where you want us to go. Show us our Jerusalem. Break our heart for what breaks yours. And so, Lord, be with us, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.